Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Music Therapy Show. This is Janice Lindstrom, the host and producer of this show, and we're on episode, I think it's like 229. That's a lot of episodes, even though I don't uh, broadcast as regularly as I used to. Um, Today is Friday, July 22nd, 2016, and it's time for Journal Club, which means the Dr. Megan Mascow joining me. Hello. Hi. I bet you're not in a hammock this year. I actually am. <gasps> That's I am, amazing. I am in my head. I am currently in my hammock. Of course, that'd be the first thing you would do when you move. <laughs> yeah. Although okay. it's quite a bit hotter here than it is in North Dakota. I bet. Isn't everything hotter than North Dakota? Anyway, this well, is a really yeah. thick... Uh, Thick edition of Music Therapy Perspectives. We're on volume 34, number one, and uh, it's got like 87 articles, so we better get started. Yeah, we're not going to get through all of them. Mm. We're going to do our best, though. All right, so the first one is the editorial on the uh, special focus, the arts-based research focus, and uh, this was written by Michael Viega, and... uh, Dr. Michael Viega, and he did this uh, editorial in three parts, and part one was a story, and I thought, oh, how can I get through this? But it was to illustrate what arts-based research is and what this special focus is using an arts-based medium to do so. That's how I interpreted it anyway. Um, And then part two uh, related the aesthetics to clinical practice and research and explained a little bit more of that. And then the third part of his editorial explained how the articles in this special focus uh, reveal why arts-based research is important for music therapists to consider and use. Anything to add to that? Nope. Okay, then let's jump into the articles. So the first one was Science as Art, Axiology as a Central Component in Methodology and Evaluation of Arts-Based Research. This was by Michael Viega. Um, And it introduced some key terms and concepts in arts-based research, uh, presenting four of the functions of art and research. And he went into great detail about each one. Uh, He defined arts-based research and um, used some nice graphics that, help to explain the different ways or represent the different ways that arts-based research can be used. Um, He talked about the methodology and axiology, which, in case you don't have your dictionary handy, is a philosophical study of value and worth. Uh, So he talked about that and how to evaluate arts-based research. And then part three, he used... um, he described his creative journey in an arts-based research method, which is described later in this edition. Um, and then they also presented video if you go onto the website and use the supplementary materials and you have a computer and an Internet that is better than mine, then you can see <laughs> what he's actually talking about. Uh, I, I was not able to see any of the supplementary things. So the, and the nice thing about this article was it had a glossary of terms at the back, which I appreciate because then it reduces my need for looking things up on the Google. Um, And 
I wish that this edition had been published maybe before the JMT edition on arts-based research because I think I might have understood that edition a little bit better if I had read this first. Anyway, do you have any thoughts to share on this article? I, I do. and it, Well, and actually I think it's sort of a blanket statement for all of them. Um, mm-hmm. For people like me who have struggled with understanding what arts-based research is, and I'm going to give a I'm going to give a shout out to uh, one Natasha Thomas, who is currently, mm-hmm. yeah, she's in Boston at her intensive at Lesley University for her PhD program, and she was kind enough to take time out of her schedule the other day to give me a tutorial on arts-based research, because I was really struggling, um, and I was struggling understanding, I'm like, but it's how is this not qualitative research? How is this not quantitative research? How is this not like how is it its own thing? really was what How I was How is it not with. a performance and just art for art's sake? Exactly. That's what I struggle with. Exactly. So one of the things that Natasha um, explained to me was that with arts-based research, just like all types of research, there's the way you conduct the research, right? There's the methodology, the general methodology, uh-huh. and then there's also analysis. So you can, you can do, you can have a methodology, but then you can have a different analysis, so to speak. So there's actually two ways to think about arts-based research. One is as a methodology, which um, Michael does a great job of explaining, and one is as an analysis. So on the one hand, when it's a methodology, it's actually the piece of art, right, that is the thing, that is the outcome that you're actually going to be looking at and talking about. Um, And it might be that the piece of art is the therapeutic process as well. And so there's, I don't know that I'm explaining it terribly well. So on the one hand, it might be that the thing that you're looking at, and that's the case with a lot of these, is that you have to think about the piece of art itself as the methodology for, this, for the research. Um, and the other way to look at it, and this is one thing that Mike does, and I think it's actually in his later article in this one, um, where he works with at-risk youth, where he actually uses an arts-based approach to the analysis of the data that he has. So he collected qualitative data, but then he turns that itself into a work of art. And that's an arts-based analysis of data. So I hear that explanation, but I still struggle to wrap my head around how it's not just um, uh, like internal processing or art, like a performance of some kind. How is it? I, yeah. I still struggle with that. And I, I feel and, like and I, I, I'm going I do, to for a while. Well, and, you know, here's the thing. People struggled with the evolution of qualitative research, and now people That's struggle true. with the evolution of mixed methods research. Um, hmm. And, you know, this is the new kid on the block, and it's going to take us a little while to feel like we understand it and – I don't know that we'll ever necessarily be comfortable with it, but at least understand it. So that's, that's my blanket statement for all of them is that I'm still learning. I'm still processing. I'm seeking out my own teachers on this topic. So all right. take well, every, I guess take I'm everything open. with a grain of salt. I'm open to learning new things, but uh, yep. I, I do want to be clear that this is not our expertise. So our explanation nope. of it may not nope. be the best we're, one. We're learning right along with everybody else. Yeah. All right. So the next article was uh, called Revisiting Grace Street, a retrospective account of an arts-based research study of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is by 
Diane Austin, and apparently she is considered to be the this article, her original article, or or uh, wasn't an article, uh, her original study, I guess, called Grace Street, was considered the first arts-based research for music therapy. Um, And uh, this is the first opportunity she had to publish it because our technology has changed. And so I was thinking that maybe that's why arts-based research is becoming a thing is because we have a way to communicate it more widely and to get it published and then have the accompanying uh, uh, display or music or play or something. So mm-hmm. we have the technology to do that now. So that may be why it's becoming more prevalent. Um, so I, what I gathered from reading this article and then the um, the one that was published a, a little bit later in this edition on the artist reflections on performing the arts-based research study, um, it, I found this to be very powerful explanation Mm -hmm. of what it was like to be an alcoholic and trying to recover or a drug addict and trying to recover. Um, I thought this was a really neat way to portray that for someone who is not experiencing it themselves. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't, I'm not addicted to drugs. So this helps me to understand that and to think about where if I were treating someone who was an alcoholic and they had these relapses that is, is pretty common in addiction recovery, um, how I, I can look at that as part of the process and not a personal failing of that human being. Mm-hmm. So I found that valuable for that. And, and the, the play script was useful since I could not watch the video. And and I am so thankful to Dr. Austin for, and frankly to the editorial staff at MTP for allowing her to publish that and having all of that richness there, um, because that did it. It's that when everything is is explained so eloquently, and you can actually look and you can mm-hmm. see the music and you can see the dialogue, right? It's like mm-hmm. when people actually take the time to explain what their interventions are in their research. It, it makes it easier for me to start right wrap my head around it so Mm -hmm. thank you thank you diane austin so in that fashion i can see how this would be researched because it is illuminating what it is like to be in an aa meeting as a person who is not a uh, real member of the aa meeting right yep that makes sense so uh it it did illuminate that for me whereas a a quantitative study would not have done that i don't believe um, all right, so then the next one was research as bricolage, navigating in and between the creative arts disciplines by Lisa Kay from Temple University. And um, this is the last article that I had to read right before the show because I couldn't read this this particular edition in sequential order. Uh, my brain just couldn't handle it that way. <laughs> it was hard. So, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I procrastinated a lot on reading this this edition. So uh, this was the last article that I needed to cover right before the show, so I didn't actually read it. It's about collage, and I just didn't want to wrap my brain around that. <laughs> did you delve well, any deeper into I, this one? <laughs> I, I did. Um, first of all, bricolage might be my new favorite word. Um. It is fun to say. <laughs> 
It is. And I love the fact that a bricoleur is a resourceful person. Um, I feel like mm-hmm. every music therapist I know is a bricoleur then. <laughs> um, I, I have to say, I did, I did struggle with this one a little bit. Um, and I think I'm going to go ahead and admit that part of the reason that I struggled with this one in particular is because when I was trained as a music therapist, right, arts-based research wasn't really a thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so I learned about, like, the, the example of the uh, collage um, and the different, like, mixed materials, working with the different mixed materials. Um, I, I was taught, I, I, not that I was taught, I learned it in a way, I'm going to take ownership of it, don't want to put it off on anybody else. I learned that that was like sort of a supplement to music therapy. And it was something that when we did it, we always did it like with the music um, and not, not, not with an art therapist. Right. And so mm-hmm. this, this person is a board certified art therapist. Um, oh, yeah. And I feel like I learned a lot more about what art therapy is. And I feel like I understand it a little bit more. And I also feel like I owe an apology to every art therapist everywhere for every time that I have stepped out of my scope of practice without realizing it. I, what I want to, what I really took home with me and the thing that has stuck with me is actually table one, um, where there's a really clear delineation of this is art therapy. This is dance movement therapy. Cause that's one I've struggled with too. There's drama therapy, mm-hmm. music therapy, poetry therapy, which I've also struggled with really understanding, and then psychodrama. And frankly, how psychodrama is different from drama therapy. So for me, um, I liked the descriptions of um, sort of the themes, right? So we have interconnectivity, the, things that, the themes that come up in the artwork and in the process, um, I like that the pictures are actually in the journal so I can look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't speak very coherently about it because I'm still trying to understand it. But what I, frankly, what I really learned from this article is how important it is for art therapists to be trained in what they do. Right? Just like it's really okay. important for music therapists to be trained. Yeah. So I missed that her credential was art therapy and not music therapy. And now that you say that, it makes me want to go back and read it so that I can understand art therapists better, too. So I'm probably going to go do that. Thank you for um, pointing that to my attention so that I can now make this more relevant to me. And, again, thank you to Tony Meadows and and the MTP folks for putting an art therapist in our music therapy journal. Right, right. Okay, and then... We have Dr. Laura Beer's article on From Embedded to Embodied, Including Music in Arts-Based Music Therapy Research. And uh, when I was first reading about arts-based research, I wondered why we weren't using music as our primary method. And I guess that's what her explanation was. This is another article that I didn't really read more than the um, conclusion and the abstract. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I read it a little bit. I read it more. Um, and one of the things that stuck out to me is on page 34. I'm a big fan of highlighting. So when I say it, it's on page 34, <laughs> that's why I know it's on page 34, because that's where the highlighter is. 
there's this part that helps me kind of understand things a little bit more, and it's right under the, sub, the subheading, Use of Music in Music Therapy Qualitative Research Projects. It says there's a paucity of studies in music therapy that use musical forms for data collection and representation. And that, to me, helped me understand, right, I looked at the sentence a little bit differently and then said, oh, well, okay, so that means that musical forms can be a process of data collection and this representation mm -hmm. of data. So that the, again, it's that idea of analysis and the actual um, thing itself being a research mode and a way of understanding, as you said. So... Um, I the part that I uh, I enjoyed where she talked about on page 35 um, she talked about clinical work as a part of methodology and um, and it, there's a lot of talk of you know Nordoff Robbins and improvisation um, and then the part that I am still sort of understanding is where she talks about non-clinical improvisation as a research method on page 35. And thankfully, what she does offer are good examples of, it says music and music therapy research, how she integrates music and improvisation into the design of projects. And then she talks about actually using it for data collection. Um, and then she talks about her reflections, and those those reflections and impressions are all, you know, sort of hallmarks of qualitative research. So I was mm -hmm. glad to hear her talk about that. Um, and then for me, as somebody who thinks a lot about data triangulation and data collection, um, again, she talks about that music can be, as you said, another way for us to understand what's happening. And so we might collect like survey information. We might collect interviews, but then we also have the music that's happening. And the music that's happening is another way for us to understand. And, and that's something that gets left out in a lot of music therapy research is what's mm -hmm. actually happening musically. And, and that's this part where she, that's I think where the art space research is starting to make sense in my head a little bit more is thinking about it as a way of, triangulating the data, so to speak. It's a really rudimentary way of understanding it, and I don't want people to think that that's the way to understand it. It's just where I am in terms of my understanding of it. So, But, again, Thank you learning for that. something from every journal article. Right. And that's next really we, the goal, next isn't is, it? Is Dr. Fornash, is that the next one? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, on supervising arts-based research. Did you want to start off on this one? Um, yeah, I can talk a little bit about it, again, simply because I had this great conversation with Natasha Thomas the other day, and um, Dr. Fornash is the director of the program at Leslie University, where Natasha's working. And so I've had the opportunity to sort of process a little bit with um, Natasha. So um, as somebody who supervises other researchers, this I, under, I understand this to be a really unique way of, of supervising, and I'm using supervising in air quotes because it's less that power differential in arts-based research, it seems, and it's more of a partnership because this is as much an artistic enterprise as it is a scientific enterprise, if you will. And so... Mm -hmm. um, 
there's, a, there's this great line. It says, for the researcher, ABR requires a trust in the artistic process, a willingness to explore and experience different perspectives, a need to let go of typical ways of viewing the world, and a willingness to embrace a commitment to delving into the arts as a way of gaining knowledge. And that's a, that's a very different way of conducting research, and it's a very different way of supervising. So the supervisors have to be willing to let go, right? They have to be willing to engage. They have to be willing to take the chance. They have to be willing to enter into that experience. And I am in no way, shape, or form anywhere close to being able to help a student with an arts-based research approach to um, music therapy or to their research question. But after reading this particular article, I feel like I have a better understanding of sort of that question of, okay, what are the when are the times that I need to sort of trust the process? And there's actually a great part on page 43 where Dr. Fornash, they're one of the headings is when to trust the process and when to challenge it. Um, so it's not, I don't want people to think that arts-based research is this like loosey-goosey thing where, you know, you just go and do something and you call it arts-based research and then that somehow you know, makes it trustworthy and valid and reliable. Um, there, there is definitely a tension in arts-based research between, right, scientifically rigorous, trying to really have an understanding of something and looking at it from a very different creative perspective. So it's, it, I mean, this is a real thing. It's kind of like when people go, music therapy, is that a thing? And you go, yeah, of course it is. What I'm realizing, especially after reading um, this particular article, was I was like, oh, okay, arts-based research, this is a thing. Students don't get to just get to go off willy-nilly and do what they want. This is, there's a process here, and there's uh, this tension between scientific rigor and um, artistic expression. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Um, the uh, next two articles are kind of more explanation, I think, of previous articles. So the Michael Biega uh, included an artist statement about performing Rising from the Ashes, and um, and then Diane Austin and the performers and music director uh, wrote about their experience in performing Grace Street. Um, and I think those helped to, uh, I guess, reinforce what, we learned from the prior articles, and I don't want to delve too much into those, but they were fun to read. Um, the next section is called Improving Quality and Access, Music Therapy Research 2025, Three Participants' Reflections. And so then um, Dr. Meadows uh, provided an introduction to this section, and then um, David Knott offered a clinician's perspective. Lori Gooding offered an educator's response, and... Uh, uh, CJ Shiloh offered a clinician's response considering our clients' voices. Um, I like this series. It was um, interesting and, and short, so I could read it really quickly. Um, and I also like hearing about uh, Music Therapy Research 2025 and trying to understand what was accomplished there and how it, it's going to direct our focus as a profession. Um, and if I remember correctly, you, were, you attended this, right? It was. I was a delegate at large. That's what I thought. And so did you read these and have more um, perspective to give us? I, well, yes and no. I got to be there when um, 
they actually presented because there was a response time for every panel. Oh, okay. Um, so we actually got to hear them speak when we were at NPR 2025. And then actually one of the outcomes of that weekend, which was actually almost exactly a year ago, was we actually, we as AMTA said to the, to the journal editors, Sherry Robb and Tony Meadows, and said, look, we really have to start disseminating right now what it is that we're thinking and what we're talking about. And so actually seeing these MTR pieces in JMT and MTP, and it's actually going to be, it's going to be woven all throughout um, the AMTA conference. Um, that's mm -hmm. actually one of the outcomes. And we really wanted this stuff to be published. We wanted this because CJ is, I'm going to go and especially brag on CJ. CJ did such a beautiful job talking about the importance of including our clients' voices in the therapeutic process that we kind of all were like, you know, we're like, this has to be in print. <laughs> we, we need this voice to be heard by clinicians. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, yeah, so this is, this is actually the written form of what we heard um, last year, last summer at MTR 2025. Okay, so I, didn't, I don't, didn't pick up on that if that was stated in the introduction. It probably was. No, um, it, it really wasn't. Oh, Okay. Um, but I, I did think that they provided a, a nice, they were useful in providing a snapshot of what happened at the proceeding. Yes. So uh, I still feel like I have a, um, I don't know, cursory understanding of what MTR 2025 is, is uh, the outcomes are going to be. So I'm looking forward to hearing more about it. And the report is available on the AMTA website for members. Yes. Um, the, so the next section is on clinical practice. So I, I had to skip to this part because I was more interested in uh, looking at something concrete. And plus, you know, I've said I before that Eric be. Walden <laughs> is my uh, uh, like somebody I want to emulate. When I like his presentation style, uh, so I always gravitate towards his presentations and his writing. And this article he wrote is on clinical documentation and music therapy, standards, guidelines, and laws. And he went, um, like, described our, like, delved into our standards for documentation and um, the, indicated that this is the, like, the introduction to a series that's going to be published on documentation. And it sounds like, based on what was written, that the series is going to focus on different um, settings or populations for documentation specifically. And he talks about documentation throughout the therapy process from referral to assessment to treatment planning, implementation, and termination or discharge. And then he describes the laws that relate to documentation. And I feel that this is really important for music therapists to know mm -hmm. about. So as a music therapist in private practice, some of my contracts don't really require a whole lot of documentation, but it's still part of my standard of practice as a member of AMTA and one who operates within the scope of practice that was with the, the combined CBMT and AMTA scope of practice. So um, it's important for us to know about our standards of practice and to follow them. So uh, this helped me to rethink a little bit about my documentation processes and how I want to improve them. Yes, and I would say I was very pleased to see because the new the list of um, concurrent sessions came out today for the conference in November, and I there are some documentation ones. And for me personally, very selfishly, 
it looks like there's a really good one on hospice documentation that, so I would, my recommendation to people would be read Eric Walden's article because it's fabulous. Um, mm-hmm. And he's such a great writer. And then go to those. If you struggle with documentation and who among us does not struggle with documentation, there are conference presentations about documentation. Um, and yes. especially there's one about negative documentation for hospice. So I'm, I was really happy oh. to see this. I can't wait to have students read it. Yeah. I just want to say uh, we've got about two minutes left of the live show. So if you want to hear the end of it and you're listening live, call 646-652-2850 within the next 90 seconds. 646-652-2850. And otherwise catch the rest of it on the archived recording. Okay, so the next article is in the clinical practice section is called Toward a Practice of Engaged Filming in Nordoff Robbins Music Therapy by Megan Graham of Carleton University. My impression of this author is that she is like maybe a film student, like a graduate student in film perhaps, that is um, completing part of her degree requirements by recording and editing video uh, of Nordoff Robbins sessions, which is how the Nordoff Robbins music therapists um, analyze their sessions and take data and document their sessions. I, at least that's my understanding of an RMT. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. So anyway, she doesn't have the music therapy credential, and that, so and she talks a lot about film editing, and so that was my yeah. my perception of what she what her role is. Um, so she talked about the art of of filming and sound editing, matching sound to visual experiences, and how it required the videographer to be engaged in the therapeutic process, even though they're not physically in the room, like she was in an observation room and doing the audio and visual video recording and the sound mixing. And uh, she stated that this engaged filming helped to capture the representation of the session in a way that assisted the documentation and analysis of the session. And I can see how we might be able to, as we as music therapists, might be able to produce a better analysis and documentation and education about music therapy if we can do it by reviewing film of the session. But it's not very practical in most of the settings that I have worked in between permissions and confidentiality and legal issues, plus being a solo practitioner working in, you know, somebody's living room and, and just not having the resources for that the way that the NRMT clinics do. But I, yeah. it, it was interesting to read that perspective. Anything for, did you want to add or do you no. want to go on? Okay, nope, so the next session. Keep on moving. Let's truck. The next section was on linking research and clinical practice and offered two perspectives about uh, the same article. So the, it was about an article published in uh, the a 2015 edition of the JMT called Common Characteristics of Improvisational Approaches in Music Therapy for Children with Autism Spectrum Disorder Developing Treatment Guidelines. And I remember this article. I remember us discussing this article um, last year. Uh, it had uh, music therapists from all over the world talking about um, improvisational music therapy and trying to create some common vocabulary to help mm-hmm. uh, describe what they do so that they could discuss it and study it in a different way. And so Rick Soshensky 
looks at improvisational music therapy from a music-centered and Nordoff Robbins music therapy perspective. And he wrote about how music is an intuitive and feeling-based, unpredictable art, and that this article helped provide a way for him to translate this musical experience into an objective clinical language. And Michelle Hardy spoke about improvisational music therapy from a neurologic music therapy perspective. And she wrote about how she uses the rhythmic elements of music when she improvises with clients, with her clients with, with ASD to help mediate the motor dysregulation which in turn helps them in connecting socially and emotionally with others. And she said that this article helped her provide music therapists practicing from different approaches to engage in discussion about improvisational music therapy with a similar vocabulary as a starting point. And that's what I was really excited about this um, because that's what I want journal club to do to help me and my listeners link research to clinical practice and to get other people's perspectives about it, which is why I'm so glad that you agreed to do this with me every time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and that's, and again, this is, you asked, you know, what are the outcomes of music therapy research 2025? And this actually is one of them. Um, The people that the delegates that were there, we actually said to our journal editors, we said, we need, especially the clinicians that were there, um, you know, said it would be, we need to have this in our journals. We need to have very specific areas in the journals or series in the journals that say, we are going to, this is how we link research to clinical practice. Um, and so that, that's another one of those outcomes that you asked about. And it's taken a little while for those to come to fruition because, of course, the journals are articles or it takes like a year to get an article accepted to one of the journals. Right. If it gets accepted. Because their publication schedule is so, it's, yeah. it's a long process. Yeah. So it's, it's taken a little while for that to happen, but this, this I'm hoping it's going to become a regular part of MTP. Um, that's another one of those outcomes where we, where we say, okay, how do we very specifically link clinical research to what's happening in the clinic? Right. Right. So, um, yay. So I'm glad that this is going to be a recurring series. So. I'm, I'm hoping. Yay. I'm hoping. That's what we asked for. I'm hoping. <laughs> I feel like they'll, they'll follow up with that. All right. So then there is uh, the research section. So the next, the last articles, you know, 100 articles of this edition fall <laughs> under this category. Um, what it feels like. There are five. Yeah. So the first one is a year in review, summarizing published literature in music therapy in 2013. So I like this article because it's a it's like a, a literature review sort of of all of the articles published about music therapy in 2013, and then specific inclusion criteria. So like they didn't include articles that talked about music medicine or talked about music therapy, but didn't have a music therapist actually as an author or part of the study. Um, So then they just categorize all of the articles that they collected, and it's a group of of authors of this one, and they they helped um, Gallagher, McCree, Reagan, and Tolman helped to uh, summarize all this 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 literature and collected it into categories. So if I were wanting to find... um, articles written about medical music therapy or adolescents with intellectual disability or mental health or um, 
neurodevelopment rehabilitation or speech and language development with older adults, I could go to this article and find it. And if my certification cycle started in either 2012 or 2013, I could use these articles to uh, look for, uh, to recertify, you know, to find five JMT or journal articles to read and summarize for CMTE credits. Or actually, I think you can do more than five. I think you can do like 20 or something. But, and there's probably even well, three articles that relate to ethics, and you can fulfill those credits that way too. And what's nice about this too is that it's a way sort of for us to check ourselves as music therapists and people who are publishing and people who are doing research is if you look at this, you can start to see what's not in here, right? There's like nothing in here on um, Alzheimer's, dementia, right? right. And actually right. there is, has not been a lot of research published on music therapy and dementia in the music therapy journals in the last several years. And so, but we know that that's a huge clinical need, right? So that says to me, oh. as somebody who conducts research, oh, there's a Actually, here. there's quite a bit on dementia and Alzheimer's disease in that section. Yeah, I, I picked a bad yeah. one. But you can look at it yeah, and go, I oh, understand. okay, yeah. And right. There's only one on parents, so that might be yeah, one to look at. Yeah, that's a huge <laughs> issue, right? Uh-huh. Huge issue. So, it's a big you issue know, for me. The, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, and... <laughs> But that's a way for us to sit back and look at things and go, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe there's a, a clinical population that's maybe sort of being ignored um, that we really need to do work on or, you know, it, but it's a nice, it's a source of information for us to sit back and, and look at things and go, okay, where's the need and how can we fill that need? Yeah, and um, we just have a few minutes left, so let's along but um, the the sad part for me was that there were they found that there were a lot more articles being published about music therapy but did not have a music therapist involved in the research at all so that's the problem Uh, lots of those means we need to do more advocacy and work there all right and then Aaron Fox and Kathy McKinney wrote the next article about the Bonnie method of guided imagery and music therapy for interns a survey of effects on professional and personal growth um, and we're going to speed through these next articles because we are running out of time and we'll get cut off. Yep. Um, so this article highlighted the important for me, the importance of therapists, including music therapists, uh, in participating in therapy as a client because it really um, fulfills your understanding of what it's like to be in a therapy process and can help you be a better yep. therapist. Plus, it helps you to deal with your own stuff so that it doesn't interfere with the therapy with your clients. Um, and I personally would love to do Bonnie Method, GIM, um, but there's just not enough providers in my area that, in order to make that happen. So that's another need that it identifies. And I actually am going to get to do that because we have great providers here in Indianapolis. Oh, that's cool. And I know there's somebody yeah. that does it, offers it through Skype, I believe, so I might look into her. Anyway. Uh, Sherry Ross then wrote the next article on utilizing rhythm-based strategies to enhance self-expression and participation in students with emotional and behavioral issues. So this is a pilot study. And uh, I know her personally, so I was excited to read this. And in this article, she includes an example of her intervention protocol, which I would use to spark my own creativity for planning sessions 
when I work with clients with emotional and behavioral issues. And in this article, or in the study, she looks at rhythm-based strategies to enhance self-expression and participation. And um, she, she writes it in a way that I feel like I could probably replicate her method in my clinical practice just to see if I'm getting the same sort of results that she um, explained in her research. Um, And I don't think that I'm in any type of setting to where I could actually publish this as a study, but it it would be a way that I could use research to inform my data collection and reporting methods when I communicate with the treatment team of my patients. Yep. Uh, And she compared a teacher performing the same sorts of things as she did in her music therapy session and uh, looked at, at how the students in this classroom responded. And she got some pretty interesting findings. So if you're working in, in uh, EDBD, I'd check that one out. The next article is by Janet Price, Roxanne Amon, Dara Robinette, Ashley Rosiger. So these are all speech therapists. Uh, I'm not sure who the last one is. She has a, a Master of Science. She might be a maybe a speech therapy student, perhaps. Uh, anyway, Probably these are all speech yep. language pathologists. Yeah, maybe so. Speech language pathologists. And uh, does music matter? The effects of background music on verbal expression and engagement in children with autism spectrum disorders. This article annoyed me. Uh, I feel like it might be important from a research perspective so that it's like a foundation for showing why music as background is not as, as effective when it's used, you know, without, by a non-music therapist, because I thought, I felt as a clinician that the music they chose and the way they did this study was not useful. It's not, was not a useful use of music. Um, they did not consult a music therapist, and I feel like they could have benefited from that, and their clients would have benefited from that. Um, but they were specifically trying to determine if it was just music without the active engagement of music that could affect change for their clients with ASD, and they found that it didn't. Do you have anything to add to yep. that? <laughs> Please. No, I mean, I, I, I think that they sort of sum it up themselves when they say, you know, the research has been about active engagement, and, and we do. We see these improvements with active engagement, but but not with you can't just turn on the iPod and think everything's going to get yep. better. iPod therapy doesn't work. <laughs> anyway, okay. it might be a good the supplement. Last... We don't want to make anybody mad. <laughs> yes, listening to music is a good thing, but not having it as a background for therapy when you're trying to get other outcomes and when you're not putting any thought into the music you're using as background. Anyway, okay, the last article, Analyzing Recommended Songs for Older Adult Populations Through Linguistic and Musical Inquiry by Olivia Yinger and Gregory y- Springer. I feel like you have to, you know, have your names rhyme to author an article after reading this one. Um, I like this one (laughs) because it lists a bunch of songs that are frequently used with older adults. And it analyzed them based on form and lyrical content, key signature, time signature, and all these other factors. And they're listed, their analysis is listed in some tables, which makes them easy to understand and grab information from. And as a clinician who works with older adults, this article can help shape how I select songs that I might use in in groups. And as an educator, I can send my students to this article to help them select repertoire that would be essential to learn and to talk about the function of music in music therapy. 
So, Agreed. I, I think this would be a great one, especially to give, you know, those first semester practicum students when mm-hmm. they're, or if you've, if you've got a class on music therapy and older adults in your curriculum, this should be a part of it. We did it, Megan. We read all of the articles. Oh, my we God. We read all the articles in this 87-article-long edition. Oh, my God. Uh, so thank you, Carolyn, for listening to our episode. I'm pretty sure you're the only one that listens to us. Not really. Thanks to everybody who listens, because I know we have a lot of listeners who like this um, journal club. Um, but Carolyn's the only one that talks to me about it. Uh, next she week, likes the wind chimes in the background. She does like the wind chimes in the background. <laughs> next week, I am talking to um, the people from Canada, Music Heals, about uh, the music therapy work that they're doing there. So thanks Yay. for listening, everybody, and tune in next week and hear about music therapy in Canada. Have a great week, everybody. Megan, thank you so much. <laughs> thanks, Janice. Bye. All right. Bye.